One, two, three. Count- <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't on the total, same time. Total failure. <laughs> Ignore that one. You, you can count down and then we clap <laughs> on three, okay? okay. <laughs> one, two, three. Oh, fuck, no, it's very not good. Um, I, I think it's close enough. <laughs> okay, welcome to the inaugural episode of uh, this podcast. I'm Frederick and... And I'm Anna. So in this podcast, we are going to have a look at proof of work and the emergence of proof of stake. There's a lot of groups trying to tackle this problem right now, um, and we want to explore exactly why that is. So to start, I want to share a definition of proof of work. When I was doing some research for this, trying to find a really concise definition of proof of work actually proved difficult. But I did find this, and I wanted to share that with you. So proof of work is a vehicle that proves that a significant amount of computational effort has been expended. And this vehicle actually takes the form of the hash. Um, You can think of it like there's a puzzle that needs to be solved by basically running algorithms through a computer a number of times. And the result is a hash that you can then use to prove that you've done that work. So this puzzle needs to have the following qualities. Um, It actually has to be challenging and definitely require effort. Um, And it should also be easily verified. And this verification should happen very, very quickly, much faster than it took to solve the puzzle. My next question then is, what is consensus? How does this have anything to do with all of those other computers running algorithms and solving puzzles? How does this have anything to do with the blockchain itself? Proof of work is not really a new thing. It's not something that was invented with the blockchain world or Bitcoin. And it's not really what their innovation was. So um, it's interesting that so much thought and effort is put into proof of work when that's not really what the innovation is. The innovation is what you said, the consensus around how do we, you know, define which block is the accurate one or the the right one to count as the last one. So what Bitcoin actually brought was um, the idea that you should count the longest chain of blocks as the valid one. It's, it's, It's the one Um, that we all agree on. And so proof of work plays a very important role here, obviously, and that it takes a long time to produce a block or is it's very hard to produce a block. And so your uh, security and your consensus comes from people not being able to produce a longer chain than the main one, the, the one that has the most mining power. So that's also where a 51% attack comes from, because now it's probabilistically you will be able to produce a longer chain than the rest of the group mining um, over time. And as long as you can't produce a longer chain, then we all agree that the longest chain is the one that we're counting is true. And so you have consensus there. I think what I'm left asking then is, I always hear about this concept of a ledger 
that you know every node basically holds a record of everything. Um, what does this have to do with it? Right. So everyone um, in the early days, now nowadays there are light clients and, and all sorts of services around. That means you don't have to store the full blockchain on your computer. But if you happen to run a full node, um, this is what you're storing. You're storing a chain of blocks and then you'll get blocks from other nodes. And you might get two blocks that fork off from in different directions. And so how do you determine which one is the right one to pick? Like you have no knowledge of, you know, which one is actually the right one, which one is the canonical one that the rest of the world agrees on. So what you have to do then is wait for another block and whichever of the two blocks that you received gets another one. That's now the longest chain. And this is the one that you will say, this is the, this is the true one. So one of the, the other questions that came up uh, as I was doing a lot of this research was this, <laughs> I, was, I started to ask myself what the point of the nodes are in proof of work. And the reason that I want to bring this up now is because I actually want to understand it in the context of proof of work. But I know that this becomes, they become even more pot, like important when you get into proof of stake. But the nodes as they stand... I know that like the nodes, basically mining can be done through nodes, but you can also install a node on your laptop or your computer if you want to. And I don't really understand in the proof of work context, why? Like, I don't know why there's so many nodes. They don't do, right. any, they don't do anything. No, they, they don't do anything other than um, validate blocks for themselves to just to say that they're not getting wrong blocks from someone else. Um, but they accept blocks and propagate blocks to other people on the network. So ultimately, Bitcoin is a network of computers sending data to each other. So more nodes means more people that you are able to connect to that you can get blocks from and send blocks to and um, transactions as well. Uh, so nowadays, you'd really only run a full node yourself if you um, have some altruistic sense of wanting to help the network or if you distrust whatever other way that you can get um, the blockchain. So if you are sending a transaction, you might use a public wallet and trust them with actually sending the transaction correctly. And you would have to trust whatever blockchain explorer that they are actually giving you correct information. But if you're running a full node yourself, you can verify all of that on your own computer you don't have to trust anyone. Would, are you trying to say that by having so many nodes, you are actually creating some sort of security? So the, the miners are ultimately creating the security um, because of um, the proof of work paradigm where um, it's their hashing power that ensures that someone can't just come along and create a fake chain and, and have others believe it. Um, but you are creating um, sort of goodwill for the network. You are increasing um, the network capacity so that you, like the more nodes there are, the more likely it is that some other node is close to me and I can sync my node faster because I have better bandwidth to the, to some to my neighbor than someone in um, on the other side of the, of, uh, the world. Uh, so you're, you are improving the quality of the underlying network, but you're not necessarily increasing... Uh, 
transaction security. So what are the problems then? Like this so far sounds somewhat functional. Why are people criticizing proof of work? The one thing that comes to my mind has been, it's basically been around the very idea of like mining. Just the fact that you are literally running a computer and extracting energy or electricity from the earth to create fictional value. Exactly. This is like, this is like a philosophical environmental problem. Um, but I'm just wondering, is like, is that all that's wrong with it? Uh, yeah, I, I'd say the philosophical problem of um, expending a lot of effort for uh, seemingly no point is, is a valid problem to address. Um, but it's definitely not the only problem. So proof of work has seen a lot of iterations in the algorithms chosen by different chains. Um, the Bitcoin blockchain um, uses SHA-256, which is a hashing algorithm that's relatively easy. And um, pretty early on, um, like many years ago now, um, there were computers developed called ASICs or application specific integrated circuits that are designed to just compute SHA-256 hashes as fast as possible. So it's, it's essentially a, a processor and a chip that just does this one computation. And so they're very, very fast. And um, there's a natural problem there because if only like in a theoretical world where one manufacturer invented this thing and kept it to themselves, they would have an overwhelming advantage in this situation. And they would almost assuredly gain more than half of the hashing power by just deploying this technology. And so you'd completely corrupt the security of the network. But it didn't and, happen. Uh, in, I mean, that didn't It didn't happen. Ha really happen that way because uh, the ASICs were developed you know, in, in some sort of collaboration. Many companies were doing it in parallel. And so ultimately, uh, there's a lot of different companies producing these things and even selling these things. So anyone can sort of buy an ASIC and participate through that. But Bitcoin, you can't really participate in the network security unless you are buying huge you know, chunks of ASIC chips. Um, which people which is, are doing. <laughs> which people are doing. Um, but again, it, is, is this something that we actually want to expend effort and money and everything on? It's, it's a useless chip other than for mining. <laughs> But are we actually worried because there are these like these mining farms and you also do have these, you know, mining cartels. So people who have incredible power in specifically in Bitcoin or whatever, whatever cryptocurrencies, they are getting together and actually leveraging that power. Is that like a is that like a fatal flaw of proof of work? Well, I wouldn't call it fatal, but it's certainly a flaw. <laughs> so that, that is a problem. So that that's really, if we sort of walk down the path of history here, uh, there was Bitcoin with SHA-256. Then other chains started using S-Crypt, which is much harder to uh, compute. But of course, eventually there were ASICs for S-Crypt as well. And then they sort of like, it started branching out into more and more complicated things. Um, there's proof of work algorithms that are based on having lots of hard drive space or having lots of memory. And they're trying in every way they can to 
uh, remove the centralization risk of rich people um, taking advantage of their richness. <laughs> so um, I think the, the Ethereum is the one that I've seen. Well, aside from the ones that use hard drive space, there's also a centralization risk there, of course, because you can just buy a lot of hard drives and um, other problems. Uh, Ethereum is um, based on a very memory heavy algorithm. So it's very, very hard to write an ASIC for it. Um, but um, on the other hand, it's um, very suitable for mining on GPUs. So you have mining farms that are now buying up all the graphics cards in the world, uh, which is which is a problem that's been felt outside of the blockchain world wow. <laughs> um, and can actually be reflected in uh, NVIDIA and AMD stock. Hmm. <laughs> but um, ultimately, people are now of the opinion that, you know, to get rid of this centralization risk once and for all, we should get rid of mining. And that's where proof of stake starts coming in. And I mean, Ethereum wasn't the first company to propose proof of stake. Was it proposed in the original like white paper? Um, not in the original original. Um, it was um, proposed after the Genesis block, but not long after. I can't remember exactly, but maybe six months into living, uh, there was this proposal that it would go to proof of stake eventually through hybrid proof of stake. And, but it was, yeah. was it the first proposal? I doubt it. Um, I think it's it's one of the ideas that's been floating around for a long time, probably even since Bitcoin's you know first couple of years. Um, but it's an it's an area of active research, and there's still problems with it that aren't really solved or not solved well. So um, we're now starting to get um, an idea of how we can build a system like proof of stake that maintains security and, and all the other nice aspects that we want from a blockchain. Um, I did, I mean, I also was looking around for a very concise proof of stake definition. And I actually liked the one I found on the Ethereum FAQ, proof of stake FAQ. I thought that was quite good. Um, so whereas proof of work was like this vehicle, at least in that definition here, proof of stake is considered a category of consensus algorithms for public blockchains. The algorithms look like the following. The blockchain keeps track of validators. So anyone with tokens can basically become a validator if they stake some of their currency. Um, the process of creating and agreeing on new blocks is done through consensus algorithms with all validators or with a group of validators. So what I've understood this as is Unlike proof of work where you have to be mining in order to truly um, you know, keep track of this, with this, with proof of stake, you could, if you buy tokens, if you buy some, like even a small amount of cryptocurrency on a blockchain, you could then put this forward, stake it, um, put it forward and say, I want to be a validator and, you know, yay. 
<laughs> and you could actually start to create blocks and create the blockchain yourself by being a validator. Um, one of the things that when I first heard about it, one of the things that I found kind of confusing was um, the idea here was that you stake money, other people would stake money, the person who stakes the most money would be able to be the validator on that turn, and then you make money. But where the money making happened, I was very unclear about that. And then what I realized it is, well, I realized this through a few conversations, but that is actually the transaction fee that you would normally be paying. You are paying right now for any sort of Ether transaction. There's the gas, and it's this tiny little amount. And, and actually, this is, this is a question. Right now, the gas goes to the miners? Where does it yes, go? Yes, it does. Okay. So right now, that is how the, I mean, the miners are earning that gas. Here, that profit or that little piece of value would be transferred to validators, to the chosen validator or the validator who staked the most money. Um, yeah, <laughs> in a <Token>. variety. So, <laughs> so the, the, um, not necessarily to the validator who staked the most money. There are different structures there. And um, you don't really want to have a system where if you stake more money, you are automatically the validator because then you could just outprice everyone and you would have the same centralization as with proof of work that you just pay your way to becoming more powerful than anyone else. So there there has to be systems in place to try to equalize the playing field. And this is where the main problems with proof of stake have always been. And how do you do that? Um, I'm not sure there are great solutions out there yet. But you're right that um, what a validator would earn. I mean, so today um, in both Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, you earn transaction fee. As a miner, you earn transaction fees and block rewards. So block re rewards are new tokens being created as a reward for mining. And you could have the same block reward in a proof of stake system. So you could potentially earn block rewards and transaction fees. Mm. And is that like, is that in, like, where does that proposal come in for actually rewarding, like, sign more significant wealth? Has that always been built into proof of stake concepts? Is this something newer? Or, yeah, maybe that's a weird question, not necessary. <laughs> um, I'm not sure, like, you shouldn't be rewarding more wealth. I mean, well, you always kind of have to. I mean, so if you're, um, giving a percentage inflation, then if you're staking a thousand ether and you get four percent, you'll have earned more money than if you stake a hundred ether, and that's your motivation to stake more coins. But really, in an ideal system, you wouldn't necessarily want people to stake as much money as possible because there it adds little value above. You want above a certain limit so that you can't have a civil attack of someone just spamming out and a thousand machines becoming validators with almost no money each. Um, so you'd need a, some sort of lower bound on what you have to stake to become a validator. But staking above that lower bound, I'm not convinced that should actually be encouraged at all. Hmm. I mean, that was this was one of the criticisms that I 
pretty consistently here is this idea of wealth winning. Um, but then I guess the argument against that or the, the way that that seems to be warded off is because the, the benefit is just sort of not worth it. So you assume that you're going to get people bidding in some sort of range. Yeah. I still don't really understand how that... Um, I guess I'm not familiar yet with the types of mechanisms that people are trying to put in place in order to make that happen. It seems like there's some balancing act going on. They're trying to encourage it. You want to use, you want people to become validators because that actually removes this, you know, mining only energy consumption idea. You want them to have a certain lower limit of value that they can stake so that somebody couldn't just like get a bunch of, you know, validators with very little money validating and potentially corrupted. So you have that lower limit, but then not having it only be the wealthiest that can actually validate because that could also be very problematic. Um, what are, like, are there ways that, like, are you familiar with some ways that they're actually make ensure a certain price limit at the bottom, but then also ensure that it's not just these like high wealth individuals who are running the whole thing? Yeah, um, there's definitely attempts. And uh, so on the low end, it's easy. You just enforce it. So yeah. <laughs> you, you are not allowed to participate no, no. unless. Exactly. Um, but on the upper end, it's it's a bit harder. And um, what you can do there, and I, I don't know if anyone is actually planning on implementing this because it might be a bit too simplistic. But one thing that you could do is among all the validators, you simply select randomly. So you have a lower bound of 100 Ether, and then you select randomly among anyone who has contributed above 100 Ether. And that way, everyone who has contributed has an equal chance of participating in validating, and um, the, the people who have staked more will still get more as a reward if they have if there's a percentage reward, um, but they are not more likely to become validators. Hmm. And this would prevent them from having too much control over the... Over the... Right, because it, everyone would have equal chance, so there's no, there's no controlling aspect of putting in more money. You'd simply just get more returns. And where does this, I mean, this is sort of the random generation of validators, but then you you do hear about this idea of the delegated proof of stake. So this is where you actually have like witnesses and votes. You can basically, like a, a validator is decided on by the crowd in a way. Right. And so, I mean, I think this comes from... Um, when you say that there's a lower bound on the amount of money you have to contribute or stake to become a validator, the immediate response and question is, well, what about the people that don't have that money? How do you participate in the network if you don't have that kind of cash? And the answer in regular proof of stake today is that you don't. You, you don't participate in security. You can use the network. You can use everything, but you aren't allowed to participate in, in validating. And um, to some, that's an unsatisfying answer. So you want to be able to say, well, what can I do with my one ether if I can't stake? Well, you could put that one ether towards 
um, someone else. So you could delegate your ether to someone else so that they are allowed to uh, stake with that ether. And then if a hundred people with one ether delegate all of their money to one person, then that one person has enough to become a validator. And so I think um, in in delegated proof of stake where you have this kind of structure, then the idea and the the goal is to get everyone to participate by voting and delegating their shares to someone that they trust. And um, of course, this leads to other problems, but well, it's, uh, it's all I sort think of... I as a thought exercise, delegated proof of stake is amazing because, you, I mean, it is really trying to reflect almost the way, you know, individuals vote for their representatives and the representative then votes for the way that the system is is functioning or like laws or in this case like yeah. actual validating of blocks but like democracy <laughs> i think some of the downsides of this is the concept of like populism or popularity or just because somebody is popular um doesn't mean that they couldn't be doing detrimental things and so this is right. one of the concerns that i've heard voiced about delegated proof of stake one of the counter arguments to that is that because delegated proof of stake is so based on reputation and you know gaining reputation and having like actual personal trust or some sort of like non-algorithmic trust uh, that then to gain to, like to gain reputation takes a long time to lose reputation can happen very quickly so like say there was a corrupting factor then that would immediately you know end that the support for that individual or node or what have you yeah yeah that's true and um while i believe that you can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time <laughs> so you, you could make do a lot of damage before you're actually ousted um it is a sort of human concern in general of, of like, can I trust this person? And I mean, in a worst case scenario, and, and this is, I feel that this is a fairly likely scenario given how widespread blockchain is and how few people actually understand it and understand what they're doing. There will be a tendency towards voting, uh, delegating your stake to whoever is the top guy because he seems reliable, I don't have time to investigate and I'll just do that and I'll get some profits for it and then move on. So there's there's um, a worst case scenario where basically one guy owns all of the delegates and um, in that case he has full control and full power to do whatever he wants and he could be yeah kicked out immediately and lose all future profits from this but he could also do massive damage in that time and short the token on all exchanges and make a lot of money and then cash out. So there's um, it's back to the centralization risk. And if your goal is to avoid centralization, then I'm not sure you've gained anything. If your goal is to avoid unnecessary mining, you've certainly gained something because yeah, it's just one guy and everything he he does is going to contribute directly to the network. There's no unnecessary computation. And likewise, in scaling-wise, um, if you have few 
validators to choose from, you can more easily scale because the consensus algorithms um, become harder and harder the more people are involved. When, when we talk about the voting in delegated proof of stake, this is another point where I'm not clear. Like I understand this idea that you have tokens, you, you delegate them towards somebody else who can then stake a high enough amount to be a validator. But what I'm not clear on is like, is that an actual vote? Are you, is this just something you, like I actually don't know where that exists. Yeah. So, so it, it depends on the implementation. Yeah. Uh, for Steam, it, it's an actual vote. You go to a page where you see witnesses and you press an upvote button. So it's an actual just click of a button to vote for someone. Uh, in another system, you might imagine a smart contract that you send your Ether to, to or whatever your token to, to lock it up and thereby delegating it to the person without actually sending the person the money. Um, and that, so there's nothing actually wrong with the concept of delegating your tokens to someone. It's all about how you then select the validators. So going back to what I said about if you select randomly from anyone who has more than X votes, then it's still going to be fairly decentralized and distributed because it's easy to get X votes, probably. Um, but if you're selecting validators with a probability in accordance to or in, in relation to their votes, then if everyone votes for one guy, he will be validator 100% of the time. Um, whereas if you, so in, in Ethereum's proof of stake, what, what will most likely happen and will allow people to participate even if they have less than uh, whatever the minimum limit is, is by contributing to a staking pool. So it's the same kind of concept. You send your Ether to a smart contract and then that smart contract stakes uh, on everyone's behalf. And so staking pools will probably be developed and used. And then it's, so then it's sort of back to the difference of how do you actually choose the validators? Do you choose everyone at random? Do you choose them with, by a certain um, you know, round robin style, uh, or do you choose them with a probability based on how much they've staked? Um, that's really the tricky question. And that's in, in that selection process is where almost all problems come. The, the last question that we have on our list is about this hybrid model. As I understand it, Ethereum plans on at least initially being a hybrid model proof of work and proof of stake, and then eventually moving, stop me if I'm wrong here, but to like 100% proof of stake. Yeah, that would be the, the ideal. Um, but even in a lot of the, proof, the hybrid proof of work, proof of stake systems, and I don't know if Ethereum's one of these, but this idea, it was the one out of 100 blocks are actually being done by proof of stake and the rest is still mining and yet yeah. you get to be a hybrid model and and it's 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 actually um not even as good as that so the the proof of stake will not actually produce any blocks it's still the miner that produces the block it's just that one out of every hundred blocks is um, come to an agreement on by the proof of stake algorithm as the checkpoint so this is um like we said with Bitcoin, the longest chain wins. Um, and the 
a problem with proof of stake is that it's now trivial to produce long chains. So how do you, you can't use that anymore. So, um, what, what the Ethereum proof of stake will do at the beginning is simply checkpoint every hundred blocks and then commit that to the chain. So you still kind of have the consensus and the block producing aspects of proof of work, but then have this checkpointing structure that, you know, you know, these checkpoints are accurate. Um, or th this is what has come to consensus as being the, the ones. <laughs> um, and then the idea here is not really that proof of stake adds any security to the system or anything. It's to develop the algorithm to put a system into place so that eventually you can not have them just produce checkpoints, but have them actually produce blocks because it's the same underlying architecture and algorithm and the same consensus mechanisms. So if they can reliably produce checkpoints, there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't be able to reliably produce blocks. But you, what you mentioned before was this idea of like just the volume, like like validators could create like very quickly a lot of it because this whole idea of like we're basically removing all of that energy spent processing and going through the puzzle yeah. that we were talking about at the beginning so that's removed so there's so this is where this is maybe why we when when discussing proof of stake people will often talk about like this much higher um transaction per second rate and like there's so much more potential yeah. but then i mean the like you just said, if the, if it's if it's not the longest chain, then what is it? It's uh, come to agreement by the validators. <laughs> um, so basically, you select a subset of validators that are producing the block, and then you have to say that at least two thirds of them agree that this is the block, and then produce some sort of proof of that. And uh, if at a later point, it turns out that they cheated and there's uh, a different group saying that, hey, I produced this, then there are all sorts of like slashing conditions taking place that people will start losing their money. What is like validator consensus? Like what, how does that, is, has that been decided on? Like, does that exist somewhere? Yeah, so the, the validators um, come to consensus by using a simple like um, PBFT algorithm. So they just talk to each other. Um, they have to like prepare, send out and saying, I am prepared to commit to this block. And then everyone else sends, I'm also prepared. And then you send a commit saying, I'm now committing to this block. And then so there's uh, these steps in, in, uh, in the PBFT algorithm. Um, that at the end, if everyone, if more than two thirds um, were honest, they've now come to consensus on what is the the actual block to to be the latest one. I, and I'm not exactly sure how you go from there to to having the rest of the network knowing which is the accurate one. Um, I know there are some proofs involved there that say that you you know you can actually prove that the um, set of validators chosen in the previous block 
have come to an agreement on this next block. The thing that we haven't at all talked about was why are you staking money? And the reason you're staking money is that you potentially lose money. Like you need to have stake. You need to be finable yeah. if you are destructive. And we Well, it's, it's not a necessity. So some people like the EOS guy says that you don't have to find people, that it's fine to simply say that they aren't allowed, like they're denied future profits is the way he says they're punished. Um, personally, I don't believe that that's enough, but um, I mean, there, there's, I, I, I couldn't argue with uh, logical reasoning either way. Uh, it comes down to human behavior. Um, but normally, like they, nor, like in, in Casper, there will be punishments if you misbehave. So you're actually, you're taking a risk to produce profit. And that's a sound economic system. Whereas if you take no risk and still produce profits, then that's not sound. <laughs> and I think that's the thing of like, why would you not just put all of, if, if you're not ever fined or punished for being a bad validator, doing something destructive to the network, like all of the things that you could do as validator, if you're not punished for that, also, like this idea that you would basically, if you're offline, if you're if you're by accident, if you have bad connection, yeah. or whatever, you would also like you could or you could be there or could not be there. There's so many things that you could actually do that would be harmful, but there'd be no reason for you not to stake everything all the time and just make money. If really <laughs> it was just based on like how much you're staking, you just go for it. Yep. The only reason Absolutely. people don't do that is because of the punishment. And so I think it's a pretty important thing. Well, they're, they're, they don't do that uh, because of the punishment and because of uh, the volatility of the underlying token right now. <laughs> like you don't want to put all your earn like life savings into something that's highly volatile. But that is not a good argument for why we should adopt like blockchains as our currency system for the future. Like eventually we'd want some blockchain to produce a currency that is not so volatile. And then you're back to the same argument. Why wouldn't you just put all of your money into that and do that forever? Yeah, yeah. It becomes an infinity machine of making money. And it's um, kind of like some yeah. of my friends are doing with ICO investment lately. <laughs> just printing money, it seems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, on that note, I think we have something to work with, I hope. And uh, to anyone who hears this, it was nice to... <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening and uh, give us feedback. <laughs>